Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. Today's guest, Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, the top Democrat in the House, and a woman who's been interviewed many times, but in a conversation this time that both in some of the things about her life that came out and the raw anger that I got out of her at other points is, I think, a really different conversation from most of what you've seen and heard from her. We covered everything from the time she told her high school Model UN club to get lost because she was having dinner with then-Senator John F. Kennedy, to when I asked her if she's still running at the same speed at 77 that she was at 67 or 57. You can hear how she responded to that. Let me tell you how this one came about. At the end of August, the Politico magazine editor, Blake Hounshell, came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a big magazine piece on Pelosi, all the complaints about her, what she's going to do about them. I wasn't so into it. I felt like there wasn't much new to say, except I said, if I could get her to really talk about it herself. So I gave it a shot. And after some back and forth with her office, Pelosi agreed to the story. We set the date for the first of what we agreed would be several conversations. Then that week after Labor Day ended up being a pretty big one for Pelosi, making a deal with President Trump in the Oval Office over the objections of the Republican leaders for the Hurricane Harvey funding and a three-month extension on the budget and debt ceiling. And then the next week, making what seemed like a deal to protect the Dreamers and even getting Trump to tweet about it. She was in an interesting spot to begin with before all that. She immediately got more interesting. The first conversation I had with her for the magazine story that's up on the site, and I really encourage you to go read it, was over the phone. I had been scheduled to go see her in her office, but then the vote on that deal was pushed up earlier in the day, and so she took an earlier flight back to San Francisco because she wanted to get back for her wedding anniversary. So we were chatting as she drove to Dulles, and I said to her, it must be weird, after all she's been through and the people she's met over her career in politics, to be dealing with Donald Trump as president. She was quiet for about 10 seconds. Am I supposed to comment on that, she said? Yeah, I said. Remember one thing. He is the president of the United States, she said. That may be weird, but once you get past that, her point was she had to deal with him. So then I told her about a Democratic member of the House who the day before when I was hanging out in the speaker's lobby, which is like a giant living room almost right off the House floor where all the reporters wait to grab the representatives as they're walking off the floor. This is one of those Democratic members who doesn't like her. So what did that member think of her deal with Trump? It wasn't her, this person told me. It was all Chuck Schumer. I said that to Pelosi. So sad, she said. But whoever that was voted right today, and that's the only thing that matters. She came back to it a few minutes later. She was a little angry about it. She goes, what a pathetic thing to say. Clearly that person didn't know what he was talking about and B, wanting to diminish the role of the house. That moment became the core of the way I was thinking about her and the story I was going to write. Pelosi knows people hate her. She also knows how to operate around them. And it seems like in some cases around Trump. And though she's definitely sentimental about some things, she's really not very sentimental when it comes to these questions. Do you have the votes? What are the votes? There's another story in the magazine article I wrote, which is up on the political website. I'm not ashamed to plug my own stuff. It's the day of the Obamacare vote that got pulled from the House floor back in the spring. All the reporters and photographers are outside of Paul Ryan's office looking for some kind of sign about what's going to happen. And a nine-year-old boy in a jacket and slacks wanders through and he says, it's not going to pass. And he says, how do you know? He says, they don't have the votes. They're all wondering who it is until someone says, oh, that's Pelosi's grandson. What you're going to hear are the other two conversations I had with Pelosi after that phone call that I was describing 
We did them both in the conference room in her office in the Capitol, a short walk from the House floor. She has this picture of a young, beardless Abraham Lincoln up on the wall behind her from when he was in the House. Now we got into it. The second conversation I had with her was rough. I pushed her on a lot of things, all the reasons people don't like her, whether she actually raises as much money as she claims to, whether she has any kind of actual relationship with Trump, that question about her age. It got tense. I could tell she would rather have walked out on me at points. She was clearly not happy. And she almost didn't agree to talk with me again. But I convinced her to, and I'm glad she did, because we got into a whole lot of other things in the second conversation about her first time in the Oval Office, her take on Paul Ryan, what she thinks about impeachment. Here's what we're going to do, though. We're going to give you that last conversation I had with her first, because I actually think it'll help you to get that sense of her. And then we'll go to the conversation where I push her on those big questions about her future. And please, get on the website, read the full story. This is a longer intro than normal, but there's so much more reporting in that story uh, from all sorts of other people I was talking to in addition to Pelosi. You can read in there transcript of the conversation she had with Donald Trump the day after the election, what he said to her. Remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever else you're listening to us on. Spread the word. Let me run you through some of who you're going to hear in the next few weeks. Eric Holder, the former attorney general, on his transformation into a political campaigner and redistricting reform maven. Bill Perry, the former defense secretary, who's the one responsible for making me have nightmares about nuclear war and nuclear terrorism. And Alec Baldwin and Bradley Whitford, who both have some interesting thoughts about the way politics and celebrity culture are colliding these days. Email me at isaacpolitico.com. Follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dover. Like me on Facebook. And now, my conversation with Nancy Pelosi. Okay, so your first time in the Oval Office is with John F. Kennedy. Yes. I was there. Uh, the first time I was in the Oval Office was uh, when President John F. Kennedy was president. I was a student. My father was going to be sworn in as part of his administration, mm-hmm. and the president was swearing him in. I got a call the night before to say, be at the White House tomorrow <laughs> at 10 o'clock, whatever it is. Pretty exciting. Right. That's a good call to get, I guess, even... Uh with your father as mayor, it's still to come well, to the Oval Office. Well, it was exciting office, right? because I was happy for my father yeah. that the swearing would take place. It's an, uh, most people are not sworn in in the Oval Office by the president. Right. Pretty nice. So what what do you remember of that day? Well, I it really have more of a, an appreciation for it now, understanding the Oval Office and how uh, uh, special an occasion it was to be there. But it was still Did you talk with exciting. Kennedy? Yes, I did. What, but I had... I had as you will see in my office, I had pictures of uh, a picture of, of when he was in Baltimore when I spoke to him before. That's even a longer story. My mother, maybe you don't want to know this much about it, my, uh, he was coming to speak in Baltimore, and my mother, as first lady, was supposed to be going to this dinner with my father as mayor, and uh, then she said she didn't feel well would I go. She knew I wanted to go because we had all of these Irish Catholic nuns uh, in, uh, from Boston in, in our school, and uh, they talked about the Kennedy family all the time. Right. So I was excited to go. This was when I was in high school. And um, when I went, I sat. they seated me in my mother's seat, which was right next to the guest of honor, and there he was. And oh he's senator at this point? Senator, he's not quite president. He's yeah. not quite president. He's a candidate for president. And so it was so thrilling. 
And this was a dinner to honor United Nations Association of Maryland, honoring someone named Jacob Blastein, who was a major figure in, in Baltimore in, in many ways, and a friend of our family. And so, um, so I was sitting at the head table talking to John F. Kennedy and this or that as a teenager. And, and, but in school, I was a men, member of something called United Nations Youth, the high school okay. program. So, there so was like Model UN Model is what, UN what I did in high school. Okay, so maybe, <laughs> but it was called that then. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's say Model UN. Yeah. And uh, the people from Model UN table came over to this high school <laughs> table and they said, we would we would invite you to come sit with us. Oh. <laughs> Here I am sitting next to John F. Kennedy. Right. Not wanting to <laughs> not accept their invitation, but I thought, I'm sitting in my mother's place. I can't leave it vacant. I have to stay here with John F. Kennedy. <laughs> so you did not walk out on John F. Kennedy. <laughs> no, but I did feel a little qualm about abandoning the model UN yeah. uh, for John F. Kennedy at the head table. Did he remember that you didn't abandon him when you saw him later in the Oval? No, no. <laughs> No, not at all. Uh, so I, I've just, I would imagine though, still being a teenager and being in the Oval is, uh, is a weird... Uh, you know, I was in college by oh, then. I was high school right. then, and then a couple years later I was in college when that happened. And uh, no, it was pretty exciting. And p- when you're in the Oval, when you're in the Oval, <laughs> people are coming and going. Right. Attorney General, you know, cabinet officers, and famous people, and yeah. you're like, wow. <laughs> And uh, you, in your office, you have a picture of that, and you yes. have a picture of uh, Obama and George H.W. Bush, yeah, the presidents. Yeah, my three presidents, yes. Why are those your three presidents? Well, the three presidents, John F. Kennedy, of course, right. two of those. And then um, uh, Barack Obama, that was the 200th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. and he came, he was a new president, and I was speaker, and I have that picture, which I'm very proud of. And then um, we love George Herbert Walker Bush. Our whole family does. Why? That, I mean, that's an interesting one. Well, that pre- occasion, he had invited me to, his family had invited me to speak at the uh, 25th anniversary of the Points of Light mm-hmm. in, in uh, Houston, Texas. And I spoke during the day to the, at the convention center, mm-hmm. and then they invited me. All, I had also been invited to speak in the evening to more of a, an event honoring him rather than just the, mm-hmm. the whole thousands of people there. But right. A not couple, just points of light, but but or re, but not this just is more about more him. Than, yeah, a, a few yeah. thousand people in a theater. This was in the evening, and so this was before that occasion. And I'm, I have children and grandchildren in um, Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. and so they were. But no, Bill there. Clinton, no George W. Bush. <laughs> I don't. I, I, it wasn't. I, it, not to not to uh, skip them. It was just John <laughs> F. Kennedy and Barack Obama, and then I got this beautiful picture from George Herbert Walker Bush, and I thought, in the spirit of bipartisanship, yeah. no Donald Trump so far. <laughs> no. <laughs> Talk about being a speaker, and the way that I want to ask you this question is: you you have been Speaker of the House. When you look at the way that Paul Ryan is doing the job. What do you think he gets and what does he not get about what it takes to be speaker? Really, I, I hesitate to make any judgment about any other speaker of the house. I think it's about results. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you produce? What can you produce? And um, I'm very proud of what we were able to produce. Even in the, even with a Republican president, we produced a lot with George W. Bush, even though it, disagreed with him on the war in Iraq. 
which is the worst of all worst things, but nonetheless, where we could find common ground, we did. And it, the, it, I don't think they have much to show for their record this year. I am told that one of your favorite expressions to dismiss someone is that they can't organize a two-car funeral. <laughs> no, I, I, it's not one of mine. I mean, I say it from time to time, but uh, it's not one of my favorite expressions. Could Paul Ryan organize a two-car funeral? I'm certain he could. I'm certain he could. I think you could do that. But I don't, that's not, I've said that occasionally, <laughs> but that's not one of my classics. What are the classics? Well, I won't go into it. <laughs> you don't curse in private or in public, though, right? No, I don't, no. It's a generational thing, I think. Yeah. A woman and a generational thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose I did. If I cursed in public, oh my gosh. It's amazing how they judge women in a different way than men. Yeah, I want to actually come come back to that, um, but I want to uh, just stay on a uh, question about one of the things that Ryan is, uh, is had spent the last cycle doing, and I'm told he's going to do a lot more of, is going around and campaigning for candidates. Um, do you expect that you'll be doing that? Will you be in swing districts and, and doing those kinds of things, or... Um, or is that not, do you feel like that's not the way? Well, that I, you... I I go where I'm invited, and mm-hmm. I'm constantly busy, constantly busy. In fact, I was in a swing district this weekend. I'm constantly busy. Um, and you're happy to do more of that, right? Yeah, but I, as I say, it's a my my uh, in terms of winning the Congress, I want to make sure, and and this is part of my strength, is that the committee has the resources that it needs. Mm-hmm. And, they, and I give them the independence as to what, how they go forward. The chairman, right. I have great confidence in him. He has a team that he works with. I don't second-guess them, nor have I any other chairman, but I do make sure they have the resources, and that takes a lot of time. And, uh, and then, and again, it takes a lot of travel. One of the other things that you were involved in over the last couple of weeks, all the attention on the Obamacare repeal effort yes. tended to be on the Senate. Uh, you were uh, dealing with things behind the scenes in uh, ways, uh, calling governors, uh, exerting pressure on people. Uh, there's a story of uh, when Obamacare was passing initially, Joe Donnelly, when he was in the House, that you got uh, uh, Father Hesburgh from Notre Dame to call him and do some pressure. <laughs> um, Where did you ever hear that? Oh, that's, that was public back then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Well, it uh, wasn't a denial, though. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the Affordable Care Act, I mean, is something that is a, a major accomplishment of twenty million people having access to affordable, quality health care. Much more needs to be done, of course. But uh, I'm very proud of that, and one of the reasons I stayed in Congress when we didn't win the, Cong- the White House and the Senate was to protect the Affordable Care Act because I knew it would come under siege. Uh, the um, uh, What's important about our success with it for the year, I mean, we started four days after the election Mm -hmm. on how we would protect the Affordable Care Act. We launched uh, with the outside groups uh, on Martin Luther King's birthday in January. That was just before the inauguration. And the outside groups have been a complete part of Mm -hmm. the success of it, the stories, the calls, the town hall meetings, and the rest. And that was, you know... 
Public sentiment is everything. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln right here. And I say that all the time, but it, that is really the truth. Anything, you can accomplish anything right. with public sentiment, nothing without it. So we had a plan then, and that helped us keep our Democrats 100% mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. because of what they believe. You know, it's a values mm -hmm. thing, and I remember 100%. And so uh, while they passed the bill after they had to pull it, this or that, they showed their division, we showed our unity. And that was very important for the senators to see as well, because no matter what you think you're doing over here, it's not <laughs> going to happen in the House. Right. Because, you, you know, you only won by two votes, which right. is one vote. You know, you right. changed one of the, uh, the two and you're, you're even. So in any case, we had a real intensity. Mm -hmm. uh, like Saturdays and Sundays would be six, seven hours of calls on the phones, uh, in addition to what was going on during the week, uh, with people who uh, either calls to governors or calls to people who could call the governors to make sure that they understood what it meant to their state. It was only about the facts. It wasn't about politics. It wasn't about anything other than this is what this me bill means to your state. And here we have the experts who can uh, confirm, uh, confirm that separate from what you, I say. How do you build that strategy, your own personal strategy of who you're going to bank shot uh, pressure on someone, how how you find this person or that person, think, okay, this is how to do it, this is how to Well, the make question who the target audience is and who are the best people to, to call them. Mm -hmm. and, and, and those people would have some influence uh, on their senators. Now, some of them have been working with for a long time mm -hmm. uh, on the Republican and Democratic side. So I had access mm -hmm. and uh, for uh, people to either influence their senator or to call other governors. And you tell them you've got to call this one. No, I don't have to call anything. I just have to say these are the figures. These are the facts and figures. We um, make sure as many of your colleagues understand that mm -hmm. because some people were signing letters on the Republican side. They couldn't possibly have known what they were doing because the, the bill was so destructive to their people, unless you're ideological and just say, I don't believe in any public role in healthcare in our country. And then that justifies signing a letter. But like Bill Walker from Alaska, you called, right? Well, I'm really, I'm not <laughs> going to the people that I called, but uh, I have a great deal of respect for Governor Walker. <laughs> Uh, and that would, was during Graham Cassidy. There were calls like that that were going on where you were, even though you're sitting here in the House minority and the bill is moving through yeah. in the Senate, that you're looking for ways to grab onto people and Well, yeah, and that, that, but also to the bill was worse. These bills kept getting worse. And to make sure, uh, we had to calibrate because if you told the senators it's not going to win in the House, that frees them mm -hmm. just to vote like a good old boy, right. you know, with their <laughs> leadership. On the other hand, if, if there, you know, you, you want to put some doubt as to whether it can pass in the House, that is very legitimate. Did you have doubt that it would pass in the House? Or were, how much of that mm -hmm. was you for the purposes of... Uh... No, I never told anybody because it wasn't in our interest to say this doesn't, this can't pass in the House. But there was an impression that was given mm -hmm. Uh, that uh, this could be, you're walking the plank for nothing because this is going to be very harmful to your people in your state. I heard you talk to John McCain the day that he voted against the bill at the end of July. Told you then. Well, you know, I do a little reporting. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I love John McCain. He's my friend. <laughs> it's, it seems like that's the uh, the mark of approval. Uh, they did the right thing in your mind. Yeah, but uh, but also I care about his health and mm -hmm. 
and them. I've known him a long time. Yeah, we, we worked together. The first time we actually worked together was on uh, the McCain-Feingold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the first bill that I orchestrated as whip. It became whip midterm because right. the, uh, the, the whip, uh, J- David Biner, went to Michigan to run to, mm-hmm. for governor. I mean, he stayed in Congress, but right. he gave up the whip. And so I just took up that gauntlet, and it was sort of dormant. And I said, well, what we need to do is do the finish the discharge petition, and we just lifted the thing up. And people to this day say, I don't know why I did that, <laughs> but they did sign the discharge petition. And, um, and so we worked closely then in a bipartisan way on it. And so that's when we kind of became friends. I want to take you back to something you touched on, which is sexism and how you feel like in a real way it is a part of what you've had to think about, what you've had to deal with uh, in the House, in Washington overall, in politics overall. There was that moment uh, when you were at the White House for the dinner a couple of weeks ago when you said, uh, excuse me, do the women get to talk here? And you were the only woman, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I think notably, Mark Short, the legislative director, said afterwards that he didn't even remember you saying that, which... I don't know who would have told anybody, because I certainly didn't. I don't think that was sexism. I think it was just plain rude. Talk to me about how sexism is. is, like For me, let me say it this way. I just ran because I was tired of losing. People encouraged me to run for leadership, so I did. And we won. I became speaker and that. Uh, I I have gotten the upside of being a woman in politics, for sure. And you get the... The, uh, the the downside of it, but uh, I've never. It's never been something that I worried about for myself. I do worry about it for other women. I do worry about it for other women because I think there is an element of it. But I don't think what happened in that room, and I, for the life of me, could not figure who would go out of the room and tell anybody that. So it, it ha- happens in Washington a lot. Yeah, Come but on. you think it was Trump? <laughs> I think a lot of people walked out of that room and Man, talked about it. Do you think it was <laughs> Chuck? Chuck didn't even hear it, I don't think. I, I just, I, I don't in, think Chuck my, even my heard it because he of, was <laughs> talking at the same time, I think. No, Chuck didn't, Chuck didn't, um, it wouldn't have been Chuck, it wouldn't have been, so it had to be one it's of the It's not a crazy people. thing in covering Washington for legislative meter, leaders to meet with the president, whoever the leaders are, whoever the president is, and within minutes for yeah. reporters to well, that, But it had to be, I mean, it was, now mind you, there are two of us. Right. And there are, what, six of them. Yeah. And Chuck and I did not go out of the room talking about that. So one of them had to decide that that would be... Someone did. Yeah, and they probably thought it was insulting to me Mm -hmm. that they would say, she said this. They didn't even know. See, clueless. Clueless. But but I didn't say it. Whoever said it said it a little bit wrong. They said, I said, does a woman get a chance to talk around here? When I... I think I said, does anybody listen when women talk around mm-hmm. here? But it, it wasn't the president. He was listening. It wasn't Chuck. So it was them. And, and one of them went out and said it. It was they. <laughs> and they went out and said it. But a, but a man who worked for the president, you feel like. <laughs> um, but there were only men at yeah. the table, yeah. But I guess my point <laughs> is that you, you have... No, but I mean, the thing is, is there sexism in politics in our country? Yes. How? Like, how have you really felt it? You, no, you I haven't have, felt it. But, I mean, look, put is, is What have is, you seen here? Well, that, I wanna, well, look, this is an institution that has been built on over 200 years of pecking order. One, I'll be for you, you be for me, I'll be for you, and I go up the line. When I ran, it was like, well, wait a minute, it's not your turn. There's no, you've had over 200 years 
it is our turn, and um, that's the way it is. And people even said, who said she could run, which only lit my engine further to, to run. But, um, but uh, I had a lot of support, and I, and I felt pretty confident about winning, or else I wouldn't have asked people to go out on a limb to vote for me. But, um, so I haven't been so much a victim, or I haven't cared Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In other words, oh, that's your problem. It's not mine. But I do, uh, I do believe that it has to be factored in when we, when we're encouraging women to run. That there's an element that is there. Uh, perhaps it's generational, and it will go away. And let's hope so. What do you say to the women who you're encouraging to run when they're when this conversation comes up? Well, they'll say, uh, well, what, what do they say? They say, I'd like to run. I don't want to subject myself, my family, to kinds of uh, uh, comments that you get. And I said, well, don't worry about me. Just be about you. Um, but I, I think that they criticize me because I'm effective. If I weren't effective, they would ignore me, right? I'm not, <laughs> so I have all the confidence in the world. But, the, but for them, I said, you know, uh, and they said, well, I could be, you know, the president of the university. I could be this. I could be that in my corporation or in my legislature, and I say, yeah, but Congress should be for people with options. It shouldn't mm-hmm. be for people without options. That's just the reason we want you to run. It's worth it. It's necessary. Nothing is more wholesome. When, what do I say to these women? Nothing is more wholesome uh, to our political system or government than the increased participation and leadership of women. I feel very, very, very sure of that. And I also guarantee that if we reduce the role of money in politics and increase the level of civility, we will have more women in leadership position and in just in sheer numbers in Congress, but also the quality of leadership that they will provide. It, it struck me when after you, when you were in the news uh, as being Donald Trump's partner and there was, uh, <laughs> well, the president was very happy with that news coverage, right? He told oh, you he that. Was, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, some of what came out of the uh, Republican base the, on the internet, what, there was one thing where it was like, it, almost word for word what had been written at one point about Hillary Clinton of like, oh, she's deranged or she's got mental problems. Whatever. It was it, it, no. exactly that. Yeah, but you um, can't be worried about that. That's yeah. their problem. That's not yours. But it, it, like that seems to me like, okay, well, shockingly, two women well, who... if you want to know the truth, that is, that's the their truth. problem. What is disgusting is how crude they are. You can't even imagine the crude messages visual things that they send over the phone when my number when my phone was hacked and the mm-hmm. number went out I got on the plane I was in Fort Lauderdale coming from some events up and down the South Florida coast got on the plane as it was getting on they said to me your phone has been hacked that's your phone has been hacked get, get on the plane you know that was it it was <laughs> doors closed I get off the plane what six hours later and I had six hours of disgusting, crude, awful, visual, personal, disgusting stuff on mm-hmm. my phone. Some of it related to President Obama, some mm-hmm. of it related to Hillary, um, a lot of it to Hillary Clinton, some of it to me, but all of it really disgusting. And, and so, these people have their phone numbers there. And you're like, you must be crazy. So I'm not offended by their calling me whatever they want to call me. I am disgusted by how crude they are. Does it make and, you worry about, like, that those people are walking around the country? Well, I gave it to the security to give to the Secret Service because I was more concerned about Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. because it, a lot of it was 
uh, geared her way in a very, very crude way. Yeah. Well, crude to me, too. But So that's what really gets me is these people, they profess to be religious, they profess to be patriotic and all the rest, and all they want to do is show off their limitations. I, I'm always struck by how differently uh, male reporters and female reporters, the kinds of uh, things that come on the internet. They, I get emails sometimes uh, from all across the political spectrum that are crazy, but they are nothing compared to what female reporters get because nobody has ever said to me like, oh, someone should rape you or someone should, you know, yeah, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but no, female crude. reporters I know get that all They're the time. Dead. And, and uh, also, uh, any celebrities mm-hmm. for... Uh, who you know, I remember during the, the campaigns and presidential campaigns in recent time, um, female celebrities, whether it's in sports or entertainment or whatever it is, they would say to me, I never, I never thought that if I made an endorsement that this is what would happen. I yeah. said, well, tell me about it. I get it every day. But I also got the dangerous stuff. I yeah. had more threats than anybody except for Barack yeah. Obama and then Hillary Clinton probably. Sure. But well, I mean, you're a prominent Democratic leader, yeah, right? But That's really, I mean, very dangerous stuff mm-hmm. and threatening family-wise and the rest of that. So when women say, why should I subject myself to that? It's because it's necessary for our country, really. Uh, not that women are better than men, but you have to have the mix at the table. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it's about. And it's very important. And that's one of the reasons I stayed, too, because, you know, that room would not have the benefit of a, a other thinking. <laughs> um, the, the last couple of weeks from when you made the deal with uh, President Trump have been full of a lot of other things from him. The NFL stuff, uh, his comments about Puerto Rico. Yeah. Do you feel, does it make you think at all about dealing with him in the future that like that's what came afterwards or is this just the way that, it, that you take what no, you can get I with think, him? No, I think, listen, what, whatever he said since then is no worse than what he said before. I mean, during the campaign and the rest, about immigrants, about women, you know. So this is about a person who is the president of the United States. If we can find common ground, uh, then we will. Uh, that everything is its own discussion. Mm-hmm. It, isn't, it doesn't anoint anybody in any way. It just says we were able to come to terms on something. And... Um, as I said before, we worked very closely with George W. Bush. I love the Bush family. You know that, all of them. Uh, and what could be worse than the war in Iraq? They took us into the war in Iraq. And yet we could find common ground as, as, as objectionable, shall we say, of some of the comments that the president has made. Mm-hmm. And they are objectionable, especially if he really believes it. Yeah. Nothing could be worse than the war in Iraq. You think at the end of the year you'll have the Dreamers deal and the spending deals uh, the way that you want it to be? That's the plan. <laughs> That's the plan. We have won every fight. We haven't, people say you haven't won the election. Yeah, but we've won every fight. They may have the votes, but we've won every fight. Yeah, right. So I'm very proud of our members because it's our unity. And again, the unity is not about my keeping them together. Some people compliment me. My unity is about... Our unity is about our values, and that's what joins us together. Whatever we think about one thing or another, we're unified about what our purpose is here. And that is um, a source of leverage in the negotiations. Define success over the next 14 months. What does it look like to, to get what you want? Well, success would be our meeting the needs of the American people, uh, to do so in a bipartisan way so that our solutions have sustainability. Uh, I'm hopeful that because 
sometimes the Republicans need our votes that they will then listen to our suggestions for legislation that uh, more directly meet the needs of the American people. But is it people. is it stopping what you think is bad stuff, or is it uh, more things like? Uh, the agreement over the spending and and dreamers that actually are what you would want essentially it's both it certainly is making progress in a, in a, a positive way to get bills passed uh, that will make a difference um, we have a, a, a large number of items on the table uh, uh, coming up s chip uh, state children's health insurance program uh, community health centers extenders for Medicare I mean a lot of insider right. Stuff, you, I mean, you uh, can't do. Can you think about actually having a proactive agenda that you work with? with yes, the we do. Oh well, we have a proactive agenda. You have an agenda, but that, new, the, the, new, an agenda that you can realistically think the president is going to sign on to. Well, the the, the agenda that is uh, insisted upon is uh, to keep government open and uh, to that do, seems like right. Like that's the most basic thing. Well, you would think, right? except if you were anti-governance which a number of the Republicans are, and that's what causes a problem uh, for the Republicans because uh, uh, they're anti-governance and anti-science. So any evidence base basis for doing something is rejected by them. So if your goal is not necessarily to keep government open, then it's a victory for you if it closes down. The central votes that we have are about keeping government open. Before the congressional break, we voted on a bill that is uh, the omnibus bill, which is a terrible bill in every respect. And the Republicans have even admitted that this bill is going nowhere. So now when it's time to get the votes, to send something for the president's signature uh, that he will sign, that we will support so that he has a majority, it's time for them to listen. And I am an appropriator. Left to their own devices, the appropriators always find a way to compromise because it's a long haul. You know, in that other part words, doesn't change about Washington. Yeah. Tell me, you've been in politics your entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever met anyone quite like Donald Trump? No, I wouldn't say I was in politics my entire life. Well, you've I been was, in or around I, politics, I grew up right? in politics. I had a, I raised my five children, right. and then I played a more <laughs> active role. Uh, well... Have I ever met anyone like Donald Trump in politics? No, or, absolutely not. <laughs> in life, else? no. <laughs> no, I mean, but every one of us is a very special and unique person. Uh, but to put the combination of uh, reality star and president of the United States, that is indeed somebody very unique. Is he likable? Some people think so. Do you think so? What, uh, why would why would you ask? It doesn't well. matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we can find common ground for the American people. I've never subjected anybody to the test of do I like you and does that make a difference in how we reach a, well, I'll a tell policy you I decision. You. We talked earlier and you said uh, that there's a sense of humor, essentially, that uh, you feel like it's important to that you and uh, Chuck Schumer can bring to your conversations yes. with him. And, <laughs> and uh, the meetings that you've had with the president get described as very friendly, jovial, those sorts of things. So, By whom? You you said very friendly. You described well, your... Friendly. Di- <laughs> the jovial part, I wasn't jovial sure. Jovial was somebody at the White House. <laughs> 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 uh, Jovial like Santa is jovial. I mean, how? I don't know. I wasn't there. They didn't invite me. <laughs> uh, do, do, is he? Uh, so is he someone? Is, is that 
a way that, that that accurately describes things that you have a friendly relation you can have a friendly relationship with him even as you're working on things that you disagree with or and obviously his politics are not your politics no matter who is the president of the United States I respect the office that he holds and the role that he plays as we go forward because the president has the signature so we will try to find common ground where we can and hopefully that will be many places. I think there are many areas we can, whether it's in infrastructure done right, uh, whether it's uh, protecting uh, the DACA kids and the rest. But uh, there are other areas of uh, you know, trickle-down economics where we will, we will not find common ground. Has your sense of him changed at all over the course of seeing him in politi- in, in, from when he launched his campaign, through, through the campaign, when he won, from the inaugural address that you were at, and uh, a lot of people were confused by well, <laughs> I, on your face it doesn't there. matter. It doesn't matter. You're reminding me of some things that I'd rather forget. Uh, but uh, it doesn't really matter. It, is, it doesn't matter about the uh, friendship or personal or anything. This isn't about friendship. The friendship for me is what does somebody do to help the one in five children in America who lives in poverty? Apply that same uh, measure to my colleagues on the House Democratic side as I would uh, to anyone running for office, including someone who is president of the United States. That is my standard for uh, how we go forward, shall we say. <laughs> I, I, you touch on... The one in five. Just keep thinking about the one in five. But So this is the, the trickiness of what this next uh, year and change looks like for you. You want to get things done with President Trump that work on the kinds of priorities you have and that hopefully in your mind match up with his priorities. But you also have a lot of members of your conference and certainly members of the Democratic Party overall uh, around the country who don't want to see any cooperation with President Trump uh, that say, just draw the line, we won't work with him on anything. And then you have to figure out as we get into an election year next year, how you have a campaign that will be against him in a lot of these districts, your members running or challengers running, but that you're still going to be trying to work with him. So well, how do you we, do that? We, here's the thing. Uh, you've, you've laid out three scenarios, how we work together, how we don't, and how we are proactively negative. Many of the people who are anti-Trump uh, certainly want to protect the dreamers. They want to protect the dreamers. So as, as you weigh the equities in these things, you have a chance, do it. Uh, when we uh, we uh, had the agreement on the lifting the debt ceiling, that's less immediate in people's lives. But they saw uh, that he came our way, and that was important. It wasn't a compromise. It was he came our way. The um, uh, but uh, when we and we want to stop some of the bad things that that they put forward. And I, that list is so long that we could just spend a day on it for sure, just listing. But that takes us to your third point in terms of the election. The election's about differentiating. It's about what we stand for more positively, our, 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 our better deal, better jobs, better pay, better, a better future. And people want to see what that is. And it also involves a differentiation. This is how we are different from them. And that's a legitimate um, difference on policy. This isn't personal. It's about policy. But how do you work with someone that you're running against or maybe run against somebody that you're working with one day versus the next day? All the time. Never like this, though, right? I mean, the... the, What was worse in the war in Iraq? 
and we worked very closely with President Bush on the biggest energy bill in the history of our country, uh, progressive legislation for earned income tax credit, child tax credit uh, for low-income people, uh, it, uh, PEPFAR in terms mm-hmm. of HIV and AIDS drugs being distributed in the world. Uh, list goes on and on. We did a, a large number of things with President Bush, even though uh, he um, initiated on a false premise the war in Iraq. And you ran the 06 elections against him and successfully. We well, he helped us because he wanted to privatize Social Security <laughs> so we could. But, but we're not about getting personal. We're just about differentiating on policy. What's personal about it is what it means in the lives of the American people and how they see uh, uh, what we stand for and what they stand for, affect how it affects them. Let me, as long as we're on 2018 here, is it an all or nothing uh, situation for you where you think you win the majority, you would be speaker again, or if you don't win the majority, maybe you Well, look, I can't you even contemplate outside. not winning the majority. I mean, everybody runs believes they're going to win, or else they wouldn't run. <laughs> right. uh, but I do believe we're in excellent shape to win the majority. I'll tell you why. Uh, history is on our side, as you know. Clinton won, the Republicans won. Bush won, the Democrats won. Uh, Obama won, the Republicans won. It's not a slam dunk. It takes a lot of work, focus, discipline, strategy uh, to do it, as we did it in 06. And we, we know how to do it. We'll do it again now. But what's most dispositive of the issue is not just history, although that's helpful. It doesn't make the, the day, is that the president is in, his thir- in the 30s. Anytime the president... Any of the three I mentioned are under 50. A year before the election, you know you're going to get the A team to run, and they're not. If you were going to run for Congress and your president was below 50 if or 40. If the normal rules apply, we don't know if they would do anything. Well, I, I, I'm the first one to say all uh, assumptions about politics are stale. Right. They're obsolete. But the fact is the record will show that you'll see retirements and you'll see people taking another look at running maybe another time but rather than now. You want to be speaker again. That isn't, I just want the Democrats to win. That, that is it. I've been speaker. I've been there. I've done that. I want the Democrats I, there are, to win. There are members of your caucus who uh, say things to me sometimes like, I want to win the majority, but um, my con- people who are want new leadership say, my concern is that if we win the majority, that uh, Leader Pelosi will decide that she wants to be speaker again and will stay and uh, feel like winning is a justification for that. And, and, and a lot of our members say, uh, you've got to stay because you're the master legislator. Right. You know the budget better than anybody. Uh, you, you have a, a following in the country that can get us the resources to win. Self-promotion is a terrible thing, but clearly <laughs> somebody has to do it. And I guess I haven't done it well, enough. The, right. But I'm not going to speak to uh, a, a part of my caucus, which isn't the majority. Sure. The, the majority overwhelmingly supporting you. Yes. And I've always had opponents in the in the caucus. Yep. That's this is politics. Well, this it's is the Democratic not, Party uh, too, right? Yeah, it's the Democratic Party. So it's like, uh, in fact, it's invigorating. Uh, invigorating. <laughs> uh, the Republicans have invested a lot of money in promoting you, but not in the yeah, kind of way that yeah. you want. And that's what I don't. I say to my colleagues, you cannot let the opponents choose your leaders. Uh, that's what they did to Tom Daschle. Mm-hmm. You know, they're saying, oh, you're from San Francisco, you're too liberal, you're this, LGBTQ, uh, you passed the Affordable Care Act, and they painted you the way they did. And I said, and that's a reason for me to step aside. No, I'm very proud of the Affordable Care Act, and I'm very proud of my district. But even with a Midwestern 
Tom Daschle, the Republicans went after him as leader. They will always go after the leader. Do you ever watch those Republican attack ads on you? They always find the pictures of you and like making such strange faces. (laughs) But I don't care about that. If I cared about that, I wouldn't be in the arena. (laughs) (laughs) I asked you about the trickiness of running, from your perspective, running against uh, Trump and the Republicans while you're working with Trump. It seems like they're going to have, uh, the Republicans are going to have to sort out what they do now if they're running against you as the symbol of what's wrong. And meanwhile, you're making deals with the president on certain things. Well, you know what? This is... um this is like small potatoes. What's important is that a lot is a great deal is at stake in the election. Uh, we're talking about democratic unity, uh, which is a very strong message uh, to the American people about our commitment to them in a better deal. It's unity among ourselves. It's unity with the United States Senate, and it's unity with Democrats across the country. And so, again, it's. Elections have ramifications. Martin Luther King said it very well. The ballot, legislation, your life. And we have to show the connection between the results of an election uh, and the uh, policy that affects people's lives. So, you know, they run against me, this or that. Actually, elections are won by the candidates in their districts. Most people who are here because of local concerns uh, that they it just articulate. seems like a weird thing, right? Like there are going to be Republican attack ads against a Democrat saying, oh, like that will help out Nancy Pelosi. And but meanwhile, that, Nancy Pelosi yeah. will be at the White House with the Republican president yeah. making deals. So why are we talking about this? It's really not important. What's important as we go forward is uh, the difference between Democrats and Republicans. And that's where we have to keep the focus. Yeah, they spent $100 million against me. Uh, uh, in 2010 and thereabouts. Uh, They spent hundreds of millions of dollars in support of uh, the speaker, Paul Ryan, when he was a candidate for vice president. And I think I'm ahead of him in the polls right now. And we have not heard any attack ads on him. More people know who you are than know who he is. But I think you're you're right, the polling shows that... He's the speaker of the House, and and we did not do any negative ad on him. In fact, he ran for vice president with positive... Uh, representations about him. Very few people who have become Speaker of the House have been a national candidate. Mm-hmm. And so that gives you a tremendous advantage uh, because people learn positive things. And you were running him. against the Ryan budget before he was even running for vice president, right? Well, we've been running against the Ryan budget as long as there's been a Ryan <laughs> budget because of many things, including the fact that the Ryan budget uh, uh, takes the guarantee away from Medicare. Medicare is a guarantee. You take away the guarantee, you take you don't have Medicare. And that's something we can talk about, about if people want to talk about uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, he wants to take away your guarantee. He wants to give you a voucher to go shopping for health insurance. How do you like that? You talk about how the Democrats, uh, members of your conference, know that many of them, that you are, uh, in their minds, a necessary piece of running things in this building. But another thing that you have done very well over the course of your entire career is fundraising. That being said, there's a lot uh, the, the, the fundraising game has changed. There's a lot more that happens online through direct mail right. now. Do you think that you are as critical to... Yes, I do. The, 
Yeah, I do. Why? First of all, one of the things we did was build our, and I consider that part of my legacy, to build uh, the grassroots part of our fundraising. Uh, the uh, fact is that I do have a following across the country that is very uh, progressive or moderate, but not pragmatic. They're not about uh, uh, any special interest. Uh, and so uh, there's no, when people talk about money in politics, which I do all the time, that it must be reduced. Uh, we're not talking about any special interest money coming to the House Democrats. Uh, I think that it maybe you're talking about 2% yeah. of what comes to the DCCC coming from uh, pragmatic money that gives both to the Republicans and the Democrats. So it, it's not that. But the fact is, is that we try to take it to a place where it is um, uh, uh, idealistic, uh, support for the Democrats. They believe in what we believe in, A, and B, that helps us grow the grassroots. And that only happens. The grassroots funding is not automatic. They see, they want to see a fight. They want to see us fighting for them. I don't mean a fight per se, but a fight for them when they see their interest uh, under assault. And uh, so it's not just, oh, I'm a Democrat, I'm going to send in my $10 every month. It's Show well, me, it's the show big donors the also that you have these relationships with. I wonder how much do you think of because this is one of the arguments that that people do make against you uh, when they or they, they they have to consider when they're making arguments against you is how much would the fundraising be different if you were not leader? How how much of a dent would it put in democratic well, I guess it fundraising? It depends on whoever the next leader is, but a lot of mine is personal. I was you know was chairman of the party in California for thirty year thirty years ago, so I have lots of relationships there and across the country. But that is, that isn't the point. The point is is that we'd like to reduce the role of money in politics. Period. In order to do that, we have to raise money to win, uh, so that we can so that we can do that. And uh, I think it'd be useful for somebody to demonstrate an ability to attract. It, it, people don't, uh, it isn't about money. It's about they believe in you. They believe in you. And, and they believe in you. You're and feeling. they believe in me. You know, I can say that immodestly. Uh, and uh, I'm very proud of the fact that all, every month, practically, we outraise the Republicans. Now, they'll have their special interest, endless spigot of dark on disclosed money that will come into the elections, but on the regular fundraising basis, uh, they have the power, they have the White House, they have the Senate, they have the House, they have the Speaker's gavel, and uh, they have the, set the agenda, and we beat them every month. Is it weird? A lot of the people that you were close with coming up through uh, have uh, have left, are not here anymore. Your inner circle is not uh, the people here uh, that you worked with a lot. Uh, when you think about uh, George Miller or, or obviously yeah. Jack Murtha, is that... Is that a strange thing to readjust to? Not well, people, uh, this is an ever-changing body, and that's what our founders had intended. Jack Murtha died, right? So that's how he left. <laughs> he is <here>. unavailable. <laughs> and George Miller made a decision uh, to move on. Uh, I think because uh, Barbara Mikulski decided not to run for Senate, that that Chris took that opportunity. I right. think he's one of the finest public servants I've ever served with. He's wonderful. And uh, some other people have, you know, children getting to be college age and that they need to, uh, shall we say, pay the bills. But um, we have a great uh, lineup of uh, young leaders. In fact, this year was my 30th anniversary in the Congress. And how we have celebrated it was at several events where we showcased the 30-somethings. We didn't talk about what I've been doing for the past 30 years. We showcased the future and some of the... Um, uh, opportunities I have provided for many of our members to have a um, 
a credential that relates to national security mm-hmm. or to be strong on the budget. You have to know the budget. I keep saying if people know your fundamentals, you have to know the budget. And that's one of my strengths. Of course, I was forged on the Appropriations Committee for many years and on the Intelligence Committee. So security and uh, uh, economic secu- uh, soundness in terms of our budget have been two of my strengths, and I see them as a path for other people to emerge. Someone was telling me a story about John Warner, uh, former senator from Virginia, that when he decided not to run for another term, he was in his late 70s, and he said something like, uh, I don't know that I'll be able to give Virginia my full... I think it was in his 80s. Was it? Well... I think it was in his 80s. How long has he been... Go on. How old is he now? And he was in his 80s someplace. I love him. I know him quite but well. But this idea, I, the question I want to ask you is, do you feel, you're 77 now. You have a lot of energy. Nobody okay. would doubt that. Do you feel like you're the same, uh, uh, you're at the same speed that you were when you were 67, 57? Yeah, more. More? Yeah, Why? Well, because I have, a, um, my purpose is intensified. Uh, I eat a lot of chocolate. <laughs> right. Uh, some of my responsibilities have diminished in terms of uh, uh, my kids are grown, sure. they live other places and the rest of that. And uh, although I would prefer they lived right next door, they do not prefer that. Uh, so no, no, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's being Italian-American. I just have boundless energy. I just don't have enough hours in the day. And it's a good thing because I have a lot of policy. I mean, I do a lot of reading about what goes on, so I know what I'm talking about. And then I have my responsibilities on the political side, so it's good that I have George Miller doesn't say to you it's fun on the other side when you uh, retire and don't have to deal with any of this? Well, you know what? I don't know what the purpose of this. Uh, I know we were talking about policy and how we uh, take the country into uh, into the future and uh, um Again, it, yeah. it's, I think we will win the next election. Uh, I have to make sure that the uh, DCCC has the resources to do so and the freedom uh, to run the campaigns. I'm not looking over their shoulder uh, about that. So, I think, uh, And we are succeeding on every level. In I mean, fact, it's been a fact, very strong yeah. uh, couple of weeks, and, and uh, surprisingly so. I think that uh, most people would not have guessed that you would have had as as much success with President Trump as you have had, and see yes. uh, see the, the possibility for more, right? Well, the, it, the I mean, it seems is, like it's been our I mean, fact. The fact is, is that when President Trump, uh, Bush was elected, uh, in the minority and in the majority, especially in the majority, because we would have the gavel on the Democratic side, we worked very closely with President Bush, and so. Uh, that is our experience, and to the extent that we see opportunity to help the American people uh, with the person who will sign the bill, yeah. uh, we will be uh, be doing that. But I think it's almost a waste of time to uh, all we have, we just we just have to act. We can uh, again. You know, I have a sweater in there that says "Don't agonize, organize." We don't <laughs> agonize. Oh, I mean, the Democrats agonize that. a lot. But right? Well, really, you have to. You have to just organize, and you can't compare it to something else. Or this might have happened, or what? My heart is broken that Hillary Clinton is not president of the United States. I think she would have been a fabulous president. Uh, but she, but it didn't happen. So now we have to deal uh, in a more uh, forceful way with the realities of life here without a Democratic president. And essential to that is to win in 2018. It's not about how much energy I have. It's about 
the arguments that all of our members be working together. And if my energy is worth anything, it's to energize others to do the jobs that they need to do. Let me just ask you one last question and let you get back to voting. There is a, a you want the Democrats to win the House. There, uh, there are obviously reasons to believe that you guys are in good shape for that. There are a lot of Democrats, it seems like, who are Democratic voters who are going to be voting for Democratic members or challengers, mm -hmm. thinking that if they, if that Democrats get the majority, you guys will impeach Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. What do you say to them? I'm about unifying the country. You know, if the president breaks the law, that's another story. But... Um, there, that's why I want an outside independent investigation as to what happened in the elections, not because of what happened in the past only, but because we have to prevent it from happening in the future. In terms of the president's behavior and his adherence to the law, that's what we'll have to see as he proceeds as president. I still take a lot of heat from the left in this country because I did not impeach George Bush because mm -hmm. he took us into the war on the basis of a falsehood. Because you disagree with the policy and because you think somebody hasn't been strictly honest mm -hmm. in his administration, I'm not saying him necessarily, but his people were not honest with the American people. Is that grounds for impeachment? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't see how that is. I mean, you have to have uh, other... Uh, evidence, but I just they impeached President Clinton, which I think was very divisive to the country on the basis of something that had nothing to do uh, with um, the law in terms of his uh, his presidency. Uh, I didn't think you should go from one president to the next for impeachment, and even if they hadn't impeached President Clinton. Um, right. If somebody has a case to make against a president, make the case. But you haven't seen that case for President Trump so far? I'm not going to that place. Yeah. Okay. All right, that was House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. Let's finish up with a favorite little story of covering Pelosi in the last couple of weeks of this that didn't make the final cut of the article. Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra, is a filmmaker. And as part of the reporting, I went to a screening of her movie that has all sorts of political and government officials just reading the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Pelosi was there. She was sitting in the front row, obviously a proud mother. So Alexandra Pelosi gets up at the end and she's talking about the movie, her idea for it, how she got into things. She started out as a producer at NBC. She says that when she told her mother she was going into journalism, and Nancy Pelosi verified this from the front row, her mother burst into tears and said, what have I done to deserve this? That's Nancy Pelosi. Thanks to Zach Stanton and Bridget Mulcahy for their help with the producing on this episode. Follow me on Twitter and like me on Facebook, at Isaac Dover. All those episodes coming up, Eric Holder, Alec Baldwin, Bradley Whitford, Bill Perry, many more. And catch you next time on Off Message. <laughs>